Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Tracheal intubation is common in the clinical care of critically ill patients. We have all experienced complications after intubation that include hypotension, cardiac arrest, and death. In today's episode of Critical Matters, we will discuss intubation-associated hypotension. In previous episodes of the podcast, we have discussed different aspects of intravascular fluid administration in critically ill patients. Links to those episodes in the show notes. Today, within the context of our discussion, we will be digging into a recently published study titled Effect of Fluid Bolus Administration on Cardiovascular Collapse Among Critically Ill Patients Undergoing Tracheal Intubation, the PREPARE2 clinical trial published this month in JAMA. Reading this excellent study prompted me to choose this topic for the podcast. And for today's episode, we will try a slightly different format. We will have no guest. Instead, I will provide a short overview of the topic, followed by a discussion of the evidence, some personal thoughts of how the evidence impacts our practice, and I will close with our customary questions on topics not related to the clinical topic. I also anticipate this episode will be shorter in duration than our typical critical matters discussion. We will be back with our usual format uh, next month. Just wanted to try something different at this time. Okay. Well, with that, let's go ahead and uh, really talk about the topic of intubation and associated hypotension. There is a platitude of small studies that have tried to identify the actual incidence, and I've seen a wide range of um, percents being quoted, but it seems that on average, what uh, is reported in the literature is that 20 to 25% of critically ill adults have cardiovascular complications during their peri-intubation period. So this is obviously a common problem, and as I'm sure all our listeners will identify, something that they have experienced at the bedside. In terms of its importance, peri-intubation, hypotension, or cardiovascular complications has been associated with increased mortality and increased length of stay. So clearly, it is something that we would like to avoid if possible, and it is an event that is associated with worse patient outcomes. Studies have reported different risk factors, but once again, uh, I believe that the literature is very clear on two risk factors as being um, usually present in patients who have cardiovascular collapse after intubation, and that is patients who are hemodynamically unstable during this period, who start with instability, who might be in shock, and also patients who are on vasopressors at the time of intubation. So these obviously are two risk factors that we would all identify as increasing the risk of a patient having hypotension, cardiac arrest, or even death associated with intubation. In terms of the mechanisms that are associated with hypotension after intubation, 
Uh, clearly, the underlying disease is an important driver. Many of the patients that we see present with hemodynamic instability from sepsis or other causes. So that is obviously always something that uh, can be an underlying mechanism. Uh, inadequate resuscitation, uh, patients who come uh, either hypovolemic from hemorrhage or hypovolemic related to fluid losses associated with sepsis or other critical illnesses early on in their course might be inadequately resuscitated. That is probably a bigger problem in the emergency departments as they usually see these patients in the initial phases of their care. As patients come to the ICU and a lot of the intubations that we do in the ICU, it is more likely that this has been um, treated to some extent. Another mechanism that is very important and perhaps one of the most important ones in terms of frequency is the cardiodepressant effects of the induction agents that we might, that we might, uh, we might use for intubation. And uh, we won't uh, dive deeply into the pros and cons of different um, medication options. We will touch a little bit about that at the end. But uh, what I would say uh, on this respect is that it's not only the medication that matters, but also perhaps the dosing of these medications in these unstable patients. Another very important mechanism to consider is decreased venous, venous return due to increased intrathoracic pressure resulting from positive pressure ventilation, including the effects of positive end expiratory pressure, such as PEEP and sometimes breath stacking and out of PEEP, which are commonly seen in patients in the peri-intubation uh, period and might be more common even in some uh, subtypes of patients, such as COPD patients. And finally, a, another mechanism that should be considered is the hemodynamic effects of worsening acidosis during apnea. A lot of these patients have severe metabolic acidosis with very high minute ventilations to compensate. And uh, if we stop their breathing uh, dr um, drive and make them apneic by anesthetic induction, um, they very quickly can have worsening acidosis that it may exacerbate their underlying hemodynamic instability. So all these are important mechanisms that play a role uh, when we're intubating patients that are critically on the ICU in terms of potential hypotension and other cardiovascular uh, complications post-intubation. We have all been called by the bedside nurse post-intubation due to low blood pressure. It's a common occurrence. It happens a lot of times, you think everything went well, you walk out of the room, and next thing you know, you're getting called or paged by the nurse because the patient's now hypotensive. And I do believe that a lot of clinicians have a reflex to give fluids or treat the blood pressure, but I think it's worthwhile to take a little bit of time to think about the differential diagnosis of a post-intubation hypotension. Um, as we eluded in the mechanisms, most often it might be either the effects of positive pressure ventilation in somebody who might be intravascular volume depleted. It might be related to the cardiodepressant uh, effects of our drugs, but there are other causes in the post-intubation period that can also be associated with hypotension, and it is important for us to evaluate our patients in these cases and not just react reflexively with fluids or more vasopressors. So um, I found a, a very nice blog post by Rebel EM a couple years ago, 
with a mnemonic that they crowdsourced that is A-H space S-H-I-T-E or A-S-H-I-T-E. And uh, it really stands for, the A stands for acidosis and anaphylaxis. The H star st- stands for heart, and that includes tamponade and pulmonary hypertension. Then for the shitty part, S stands for stacked breaths, which is something that we mentioned as a mechanism, especially causing auto-peep. H stands for hypovolemia. I stands for induction agent. T sound, uh, stands for tension pneumothorax and E for electrolytes. So let's talk a little bit about each one of these uh, as part of your quick differential. So we did mention acidosis, especially when we blunt the uh, minute ventilation or the high respiratory drive, we might exacerbate acidosis. That often can be associated with a worsening in hemodynamics. So the best probably prevention of this is to recognize patients who pre-intubation or pre-induction of anesthesia have a very high respiratory rate or very high minute ventilation. We can even look at the end tidal CO2. And as we bag ventilate these patients or as we put them on the ventilator initially, make sure that we are targeting that end tidal CO2 and keeping that respiratory drive or minute ventilation at a high level in order to prevent a worsening uh, of the acidosis by producing on top of their uh, metabolic acidosis, a respiratory component. Anaphylaxis, just to mention that um, some of the induction um, agents such as ketamine and etomidate have been associated with case reports of anaphylaxis. More commonly, although still rare, some of the neuromuscular blockers that are utilized like succinylcholine and rocuronium can also be associated with anaphylaxis. So even though this is not a common uh, finding, it should be on your differential. And obviously, uh, by examining the patient, if you recognize that this might be the case, should be treated appropriately. In terms of the heart, we talked about tamponade and that it's well described that um, patients who have tamponade physiology are at increased risk of cardiovascular collapse during intubation or induction of anesthesia. So we should be very careful. Uh, some authors have proposed having a little bit of a higher threshold for um, intubating patients with tamponade. On the other hand, I think that we might be ready to, to act when needed, if that's the case. And this might be something that is very important, not only in trauma patients who are at a higher risk of having hemorrhagic tamponade, but also in other medical patients. Patients with pulmonary hypertension also can have a very uh, important decrease in their venous return and in their um, filling pressures with induction of anesthesia. So just remember that in patients who have a documented history of pulmonary hypertension. Hypovolemia, I think, is uh, self-evident. What I would say is that when we have patients who we suspect are hypovolemic on arrival, we should adequately resuscitate them as we initiate treatment and uh, do the best we can as we uh, approach um, the, the intubation time. Uh, the induction agent, we talked about uh, the cardiorespiratory uh, or cardiodepressant effects of some of these induction agents. Um, there is obviously literature that supports that perhaps ketamine has a lower cardiodepressant effect. Etomidate has also been um, reported as having lower impact on blood pressure. There's been other issues associated with etomidate uh, related to adrenal dysfunction, 
we're not going to dive deeply into those. But what I would say with the induction agent that more and more people are recognizing is that perhaps, I mean, in patients in whom we're concerned about hemodynamic instability, we should be using lower doses, uh, and that might be as important as selecting the right, the right agent. Tension pneumothorax, uh, clearly something that can be exacerbated uh, when we put patients on positive pressure ventilation, so something to, to keep in the back of our mind. Uh, obviously, very, very, very high on the list in trauma patients, but also in patients post-CPR or patients who have other reasons for their 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 critical illness tension pneumothorax should be part of our 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 differential and finally electrolytes and specifically here could be cardiac uh, changes associated with hyperkalemia in patients who receive succinylcholine for example and we don't always have the electrolytes on 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 at hand when we intubate somebody emergently and they're obviously well described risk groups but there might be patients that for other reasons have an unrecognized elevation in their potassium that can be exacerbated by the use of neuromuscular blockers such as saxonylcholine. So again, this is a, a differential that I find very, very useful. I think it's important for us to always ask ourselves post-intubation when there's hypotension, could I be missing something or is this just a something that is related to volume or the induction agent? So Think about these other causes in your differential and make sure that you evaluate the patient. And we have also ordered, I'm sure, stat IV fluids in patients we are intubating, either due to concern for potential cardiovascular collapse pre-intubation or in response to low blood pressure post-induction of anesthesia or intubation. And it's very common that we will order for stat fluid bolus. And what I want to go next to is to review the evidence on this practice. Uh, obviously, this is a very important clinical topic, something that we see frequently at the bedside, but it's not something that has been studied extensively. Furthermore, I believe it's something that is probably very difficult to study. So there are two studies from the, by the same group, um, PREPARE and PREPARE2, that really uh, are the most important studies in, in this area. Uh, we're going to talk in more detail about PREPARE2 that, as I mentioned in the intro, was recently published in JAMA. But I just want to give you a little bit of background on PREPARE1, which was uh, published in 2019. It was a pragmatic, uh, multicenter, unblighted, randomized trial that took place in nine sites in the USA. Of those, eight were ICUs and one was in ED. And this study looked at critically ill adults undergoing tracheal intubation and these were randomly assigned to either an intravenous infusion of 500 mLs of crystalloid solution or no fluid bolus. The primary outcome was cardiovascular collapse, defined as a new systolic blood pressure below 65 millimeters of mercury. So just to emphasize, that's a systolic blood pressure below 65 millimeters of mercury. So really severe hypotension, not something transient. It also included new or increased vasopressor administration two minutes after tracheal intubation or cardiac arrest or death within one hour of tracheal intubation. So this was the, the composite endpoint of uh, cardiovascular collapse. And uh, what they were trying to see is if giving somebody in the peri-intubation period, pre-induction 500 ml bolus of crystalloid would prevent the incidence or decrease the incidence of any of these complications. So cardiovascular collapse occurred in 20% of the patients receiving fluid bolus 
and then 18% of the patients that did not receive a fluid bolus. This study was terminated early for futility after approximately 337 patients. Um, there's an excellent blog post uh, attached a link in the show notes that talked about the study when it came back when it came, when it came out back in 2019. But what they did find in this study, which was interesting, was in the subgroup analysis, they they seemed to see a signal towards potential benefit in patients who were pre-ventilated before induction and after induction with positive pressure ventilation. Um, so based on that and the fact that this study um, was stopped after 300-plus patients, um, the same investigators uh, prepared a follow-up um, study. There was uh, no pun intended there. The study was called PREPARE2. And uh, here the research question was uh, related to in critically ill patients undergoing tracheal intubation, does intravenous infusion of a 500 ml crystalloid solution bolus decrease the incidence of severely low blood pressure, cardiac arrest, or death? The three of them referred together as a cardiovascular collapse during or shortly after the procedure. So they were trying to see if in the special population would this bolus prevent or decrease the incidence of the uh, complications grouped within cardiovascular collapse. The objective of PREPARE2 was to determine the effect of fluid bolus administration on the incidence of severe hypertension, cardiac arrest, and death associated with tracheal intubation. This was a multicenter, pragmatic, randomized clinical trial that took place in 11 ICUs across the United States. It enrolled adult patients undergoing tracheal intubation with the planned use of medications to induce anesthesia and positive pressure ventilation with either a bag mass device or a non-invasive ventilator between induction of anesthesia and laryngoscopy. So in this study in particular, all patients enrolled were receiving positive pressure ventilation via bag, um, ambu bag, or non-invasive ventilation um, during induction and uh, intubation. And they all received drugs, which really summarizes the most common situation when I intubate at the bedside. And I'm sure this is true for, for most of our patients, for most of our listeners. So I think that the adult patients that were captured in this study very well fit what we encounter on a daily uh, basis at the bedside. Patients were excluded if they were pregnant, were incarcerated, had an immediate need for tracheal intubation precluding randomization, or the clinician performing the intubation thought the patient had an indication, which means required fluid, or had a clear contraindication for fluid bolus during intubation. So again, I mean, these were some of the, the, the uh, exclusion criteria, but in general, I think that the patients they were enrolling are really reflective of what we see at the bedside uh, in our practice. In terms of the trial intervention, uh, there were two groups, the fluid bolus group and the no fluid bolus group. The fluid bolus group uh, received an infusion of 500 mLs of isotonic crystalloid solution. The specific fluid was an operator's choice, so the clinicians could use whatever they, they use in the normal course of their clinical care. Operators um, instructed were instructed to infuse fluid from above the level of the IV or IO axis by gravity, manual pressure or pressure back, so really try to do it as a bolus, and infuse as much of the 500 ml bolus prior to induction of anesthesia 
as possible without delaying the procedure. And three, infuse any of the 500 ml solution that remain after induction of anesthesia during the tracheal intubation procedure. So those, those were the indications for the fluid bolus and the fluid bolus group. The no fluid bolus group, um, intravenous fluid bolus was not permitted except as treatment for hypotension or the operator determined that an intravenous fluid bolus was necessary for treatment. All other aspects of the tracheal intubation were deferred to the operators, the clinicians taking care of the patient. And as this was a pragmatic trial, delivery of the assigned trial intervention occurred within um, the routine clinical care of the patient. And that perhaps is a strength of the trial, that it really occurred in the in real clinical uh, environment. Obviously, this precluded it from being blinded because the treating physicians knew if the patient got a bolus or not. But, uh, but clearly, I, I believe that we are seeing an increased number of pragmatic studies, and they obviously have um, advantages such as the one of reflecting clinical practice and making these trials um, feasible. The primary outcome of this trial was cardiovascular collapse, which, as I said earlier, is a composite uh, defined by one or more of the following being present um, in, in, the, in the study period. New or increased receipt of vasopressors within two minutes of induction of anesthesia, a systolic blood pressure of less than 65 millimeters of mercury between induction of anesthesia and one hour after tracheal intubation, cardiac arrest between induction of anesthesia and one hour after tracheal intubation, or death between induction of anesthesia and one hour after tracheal intubation. The single pre-specified secondary outcome was the incidence of death prior to day 28, which was censored at hospital discharge. They had some other safety exploratory outcomes, and we'll talk on some of those maybe um, a little bit um, ahead, but ultimately I think that the most important uh, outcomes were the primary outcome in terms of cardiovascular collapse. So in terms of the results, the, there were 1,576 patients screened, um, a number of patients, a little bit over 400 patients were excluded, and the details of these exclusions are in the, in the manuscript, which a link will be uh, in the show notes. I'll defer that to our listeners to, to read in more detail. They're interested. But at the end, this left uh, 1,067 patients enrolled and randomized in the trial, which, again, I mean, is a significant number. It's uh, three times larger than PREPARE-1 and they clearly had a more selected population that I think better reflects what we see in the ICU, uh, perhaps a more robust uh, a patient um, population and a more robust clinical study for sure. Uh, in terms of the baseline characteristics of, of the patients enrolled in the study, I think that uh, important to mention that both groups were pretty similar in most characteristics. The average or the median age was around was 61 and 62 percent of females and males was very similar. Um, the, the ethnicity was very similar. The majority of the patients in this study in both groups were non-Hispanic whites. Um, the, the weight, uh, the median weight was the same. The median body mass index was very similar. 27.6 in the fluid bolus group and 27.7 in the non-fluid bolus group. Comorbidities, uh, active conditions were all very similar. Of note, this study had a low percent of patients with COVID-19, only 6% in each group um, had COVID-19. 
indications for tracheal intubation, Apache 2 score, use of vasopressors. It, in summary, the two groups were very, very similar and very comparable, um, which I think is always important. I mean, it's a large randomized study, so no surprise there. In terms of uh, the characteristics of the tracheal intubation per se, that is always uh, interesting and worth reviewing. I think that um, what I would say here is that, um, first of all, adherence with the protocol in terms of intravenous fluid was phenomenal. Uh, in the fluid bolus group, 99.4% of patients got the fluid bolus as indicated by the protocol. And in the no fluid bolus group, only 1.1% of the patients got a fluid bolus. That would be uh, probably because somebody indicated uh, that the patient needed it. So there was a clear difference in intervention between the fluid bolus group and the no fluid bolus group. The volume infused between enrollment and two minutes after um, tracheal intubation, um, the median was 500 for the fluid bolus group as per protocol, and it was zero for the non-fluid bolus group as per protocol. So again, very clear differentiation between both groups. In terms of the management of the tracheal intubation, the pre-oxygenation methods were very similar between both groups. Um, I would say that a third got bilevel positive airway pressure, a, a third got a bag mask device, and a third got a non-rebreather mask, um, roughly. And then there were other things that were that were added. A very a few patients, only 0.7 in, in the bolus group and 0.4 in the non-bolus group, did not receive any pre-oxygenation. The uh, vasopressor bolus or infusion administered between enrollment and induction of anesthesia to prevent hypotension, so before anesthetics, was very similar. 12.3% uh, in the fluid bolus group and 11.8% in the no fluid bolus group. So both groups very, uh, very low, I mean, less uh, close to 10%. And then there is a, a no difference in terms of the oxygen saturation and induction of anesthesia. The median was 99% in both groups. And in terms of the induction agent, which I always find interesting to see what, what, what a large multi-trial um, practice, pragmatic study reveals about practice, the uh, number one induction agent was etomidate. 76.8% of the patients in the fluid bolus group got etomidate versus 78.9% in the no fluid bolus group. Second was ketamine. 12.3% in the fluid bolus group and 10% in the no fluid bolus group. And third was propofol, uh, with it being a little bit under 10% in the fluid bolus group and 10% in the no fluid bolus group. So clearly, in this large pragmatic trial, um, the use of etomidate was overwhelmingly the most common induction agent. 94.6% uh, of the patients in the bolus group got neuromuscular blocking agents. And 93.4 got in the no fluid bolus group, got a neuromuscular blocker. And of these, the most common, um, 74 and 71% respectively, was rocuronium. So again, very uh, interesting just information on this, on this study. And it seemed that the vast majority of these patients were um, treated with etomidate and with rocuronium as their uh, induction and neuromuscular blocker agents. And again the vast majority of patients did receive a neuromuscular blocker. So from the perspective of baseline characteristics and the perspective of management of the tracheal intubation, clearly 
uh, groups were similar, except for the intended differences, which were per protocol. And there's been tremendous adherence in this program and this and this study to the protocol and clear differentiation in the the bolus for these uh, patient, for these two groups. Um, so finally, let's just go to the outcomes of tracheointubation. As we mentioned earlier, the primary outcome was cardiovascular collapse. And uh, in the fluid bolus group, that occurred in 21% of the patients. In the no fluid bolus group, that occurred in 18.2% of the patients. And uh, the absolute difference and uh, 95% confidence interval did not reach significance. So there was no difference. When you look at individual components of the cardiovascular collapse, um, aggregate, which are newer increased receipt of vasopressors, uh, systolic blood pressure below 65, uh, and cardiac arrest and death. Again, no significant difference, very similar numbers between both groups. The secondary outcome was in-hospital death prior to day 28. 40.5% of the patients in the fluid bolus group um, died before day 28, and 42.3% in the no-fluid bolus group Again, the difference and the 95% confidence interval did not uh, achieve statistical significance. Other exploratory um, outcomes included the lowest level of the systolic level, the change in blood pressure, lowest arterial oxygen saturation, oxygen saturation below 80, um, need for invasive mechanical ventilation, I'm sorry, invasive mechanical ventilation free days through day 28, intensive care unit free days through day 28, and uh, in none of these exploratory outcomes did they find a difference uh, between both groups. And furthermore, when they looked at subgroup uh, analyses, there also were no identifiable um, differences. So the authors concluded that among critically ill adults undergoing tracheointubation, administration of an intravenous fluid bolus compared with no fluid bolus did not significantly decrease the incidence of cardiovascular collapse. Uh, I think this was a very well-conducted trial, uh, obviously a difficult topic to, to study. It doesn't cover all situations that are associated with hypotension and intubation. Uh, this was prophylactically giving a wide group of patients a fluid bolus prior to intubation. I don't think that's warranted based on this and the previous PREPARE study. Um, obviously, if you think somebody needs fluids, if for other reasons or because you think they're being resuscitated, we should proceed with giving fluids. But if you don't think that there's a clinical indication at that time, just giving them a 500 ml bolus of crystalloid is probably not going to make a big, a big difference. It might delay um, your, your uh, intubation. So I think that there's a lot to, to, to comment on the study. Uh, people always like to, to find uh, faults with studies. I, as a practicing bedside clinician just tip my hat to researchers that are able to pull studies like this together that inform our practice and help us advance our understanding of what we need to do at the bedside and um, you could argue that perhaps 500 mls is not enough that we should be pre-selecting those who might or might not need fluid and those are all very valid points but not what they studied in this particular trial so in terms of the take-home points I do believe that as we're treating critically ill patients, we should always be evaluating their resuscitation and we should be resuscitating them. A lot of that is still to be defined what's the best way to resuscitate a patient. 
If you feel somebody is intravascular volume depleted, for all means, they need fluids. We should be giving them fluids as we are preparing to intubate them. I also think that we should plan uh, as best we can uh, to intubate uh, in the best manner possible. A lot of people uh, like to use rapid sequence intubation. Some people have called that resuscitated sequence intubation. Uh, people have preferences for different drugs. Uh, we talked about some of the cardiodepressant properties of these drugs. I mean, I, I do believe that in general, we all would agree that propofol probably would cause more hypertension or cardiac depression than etomidate or ketamine. Which one you choose to use, I think, depends a lot on your practice. I did mention that there are some concerns with etomidate re regarding adrenal insufficiency. The truth is that perhaps more than the, the, the drug that we select for induction, it's recognizing that patients who are hemodynamically unstable, especially, might require lower doses or might benefit from lower doses. Um, so think about the, the appropriate dosing of patients. It's not one dose fits all. Uh, the use of neuromuscular blockers have been, has been associated with um, post-intubation hypotension in, in some studies. And uh, uh, clearly in this study, they had a very high penetration of neuromuscular blockers, over 95% in both groups. So again, which neuromuscular blocker you, you choose to use and the dose that you utilize is also very important perhaps. Clearly, it seems that based on this study, uh, the clinical practice of these 11 ICUs um, overwhelmingly uh, prefer to use rocuronium. So again, uh, what I would say in terms of as you plan your intubation, choose your drugs, think about the dosing. Uh, a lot of people would argue that a bolus of uh, 500 is not as effective regardless to increase blood pressure. So perhaps, I mean, if you're concerned about that, should you have vasopressors ready or running? And uh, we're also seeing a movement in the, our willingness to use vasopressors peripherally. So uh, a lot of times you might not have a central line by the time you're treating a patient early on in their course. So I do believe that probably if you're concerned about blood pressure, uh, having vasopressors ready or infusing vasopressors peripherally probably is going to be more effective on raising the blood pressure than giving a bolus. So these are all things that you should be planning and anticipating as you are getting ready to intubate these patients. So for sure, uh, more to come, I, I hope, as more studies are done. But I, I do believe that uh, we should always uh, plan as best we can and anticipate potential problems and be ready. But based on this study and the previous study, just giving people a bolus of IV fluids as we are preparing to intubate does not seem to make a difference in the incidence of cardiovascular complications. Uh, there are some guidelines that recommend that. It, it seems that the evidence at this point would not uh, support that. So clearly a, a fascinating topic, something that we see commonly. I hope that uh, the discussion was useful. Uh, I encourage our listeners to pick up the articles and the links, to look at the links to, to other sources. Uh, this is something that for, uh, for as much as we see it at the bedside, there's probably not as much literature but I do believe that there is some evidence that we should be incorporating into our practices. As I said uh, at the beginning, uh, today is a little bit of a different uh, episode. I don't have my customary guest, so I will um, finish by answering some of the questions that I have asked my guest throughout um, previous episodes of Critical Matters. 
The first question relates to books that have influenced uh, me the most or books that I gifted often. I think I've talked about this previously. So what I'll do today is actually mention two books that I have read in the last month that I found really fascinating and with great lessons for all of us. And both books are by the same author. They're two biographies. Uh, by Walter Isaacson. I first read the biography of Leonardo da Vinci and was fascinated by by the book, which led me to pick up another book by Walter Isaacson on Benjamin Franklin, and uh, I, w- I would say it was equally fascinating. From these two polymaths, geniuses of multiple domains, I think we can definitely learn a lot that we can apply today at the bedside and elsewhere in our life. So from the Leonardo da Vinci book, for sure, the, the value of true curiosity of trying to learn every day is something that we should all do better. And if Leonardo was so curious, I think that we can all try to, to be as curious as he was. And um, he would every day write in his uh, notebook things he needed to learn. And one of the, the entries that I find most fascinating was he needed to understand and describe the tongue of a woodpecker. If you read the book, I think you will find that that is quite fascinating and has a link to traumatic brain injury. So something very cool. The other uh, lesson from Leonardo that I think we should all take uh, home is learning from other disciplines. And I believe that as we move post-COVID in the ICU, there's a lot of innovation that will be required in our ICUs And the best way to find new ideas is to look elsewhere, outside of medicine. So I would encourage all our listeners to to expand their horizons and to seek for for inspiration outside of um, critical care, outside of medicine. And uh, I think that Leonardo probably is the utmost example of how that really can be done very well. The second book on Benjamin Franklin very similar uh, in terms of being a polymath that really had a unquenchable desire to learn and explore. But the two things I would take home from this book are pragmatism and uh, really the role that Benjamin Franklin had in our independence, but also in the Constitution. Really, really it comes through in this book in terms of trying to find pragmatic solutions and compromises which I think is something that we should do better at the bedside and something that we all could do better outside of medicine. So that compromise towards pragmatic solutions, super, super valuable. And the second lesson that I would take from Benjamin Franklin is tolerance. Um, The ability really to tolerate other ideas, to tolerate other philosophies, to tolerate other views of the world, I think more than ever, uh, it's super important in the ICU, but also outside of the ICU with everything that we're living in our country. So I would encourage um, you to pick up one of these books and enjoy the read, but also uh, recognize that there's much we can learn from the life of great men. The second question relates to what do I believe to be true that most other people don't believe? And I would say um, less is more. Uh, We tend have a tendency in life but for sure in the ICU of wanting to do more and more and more and over and over again as this study that we reviewed today has shown us sometimes doing less is actually the most effective way of uh, of moving forward so I would say that we should definitely do less things in the ICU 
or more impact uh, as opposed to doing many, many things with a whole side of side effects. So think about that every day. Less is more. And there's opportunities uh, at every corner to really uh, implement this. And finally, in terms of uh, what would I want every listener to know, I would just say that we need to listen more. Listen more and talk less. And when you listen to others, try to understand where they're coming from and try to learn something. Try to convince yourself of why their position might be better than yours as opposed to just waiting for your turn to tell them why they're wrong. I think we need to listen more and talk less, be less assertive, and be more, more, more humble. So with that, I'll stop. And uh, I really want to thank you for your ongoing support for the podcast. Would encourage you to uh, share the podcast if you find it valuable, to reach out uh, via email uh, to myself uh, if you have comments. And uh, you can find my email, I'm sure, very easily. Uh, and also to uh, put comments uh, if, if they're valuable for you. Uh, once again, we're trying to just uh, share content that ultimately makes our life a little bit easier at the bedside. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.